You've probably dropped your phone in a pool or spilled water on it. Chris here has a solution. One of the most important things to do is to not try to power the phone on. People's initial reaction is kind of try to turn the phone on. And uh, that's a big mistake because uh, you're passing a current through the logic board and a lot of times that'll short out components on the logic board. And uh, if you drop it in regular fresh water or toilet water or something like that, uh, would be to take it out and put it in a Ziploc bag with uh, rice. And uh, can I it, can I can uh, I stop you? Do you so you fix phones. Do you see a lot that are uh, inundated with toilet water? Oh yeah, we, oh, we see a ton. And uh, unfortunately, not all the time the customers uh, tell us that uh, <laughs> it, it's been in the toilet. So how do you find that out? Um, they tell us later. <laughs> <laughs> So it's kind of a kind of a surprise. We have to, you know, we use uh, rubber gloves when we're handling them and all that kind of stuff. Probably to, a good uh, idea. Yeah, definitely. So you just put your phone inside this plastic Ziploc bag with rice, and what happens? Um, what it does is uh, the rice acts similar to a deskin, and uh, you leave it in there for like 24 to 48 hours, and uh, rice helps absorb uh, water. You know, when you cook a, a bowl of rice, you put like a I don't know the exact measurements, but half half a cup of uh, rice to a cup of water, and by the time it's all done, you, the uh, all the water's gone. So it kind of acts the same way. So it it soaks up a lot of the water and uh, takes in any kind of moisture that might be on the inside of the phone. Hmm. Can you eat the rice? Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Right. You definitely could, but uh, it's probably not. If it went in the toilet, you probably don't want to chew on it. Yeah. You can find more from Chris at ifixyoureye.com. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. On today's show, we'll teach you how to choose a pope. Yeah, if you need one for your religion. You never know. Uh, how to cook gourmet food while camping. And we'll announce the winner of the world's best worst song contest. But first... Very exciting news this week for anyone that is a fan of the deep, deep sea. James Cameron, in his one-man super submarine, made it seven miles down to Challenger Deep. Kevin Hand is a scientist at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's one of the crew members with Cameron's mission. Kevin's involved with the expedition, not so much because he's a submarine guy, but because he's studying extraterrestrial life. Tiny, tiny aliens. One of my primary focal points for research is a moon of Jupiter called Europa. This is a, a moon about the size of our own moon. It's covered in ice, and beneath that ice we have very good reason to believe there exists a global liquid water ocean of some 100 kilometers in depth. Uh, And so if you do the math, it turns out that Europa's ocean contains about two to three times the volume of all the liquid water found here on Earth. And so if we've learned anything about life on Earth, it's that uh, where you find the liquid water, you generally find life, and and Europa's a, a prime target in our search for life beyond Earth. Um, And so the deep ocean here on Earth is somewhat of an analogous environment to what we anticipate uh, the ocean on Europa to be like. I'm hoping that uh, by studying some of the the chemistry and mineralogy of of what's happening down there, uh, we can learn things not only about life here on Earth, but also extend that knowledge to our search for life elsewhere. So what are some of like the key, we're like, we're a how-to show. So if we wanted to kind of do this dive ourselves, say if Ian and I wanted to go out and go diving in the Marianas Trench. What would we need to do to make a dive like this? 
Well, for you to make a dive like this, I guess you'd first have to ask yourself, what do you actually want to accomplish? Because if you just wanted to get down there and say that you got down there, um, you could uh, buy yourself a, a, a metal sphere that's hollowed out, climb into it, bolt the hatch, have some little bolt that attaches to uh, to some some dead weight that you can drop once you get down there, and then you can put some special syntactic foam on the top to give you a little bit of buoyancy. And you could go down there, uh, hit the bottom, turn the, the bolt so you drop the weight, and then you would come back up uh, and, and reach the surface. But of course, you haven't included a, a window so that you can yeah. see the bottom. You haven't included cameras. You haven't included a robotic arm. So just touching the surface and coming back up, to some extent, is just a matter of solving that basic pressure problem and you can do that with a really thick-walled steel sphere. So it seems like you would also need heating and air conditioning down there, too, because the vents have got to be super hot, but when you're far from the vents, how cold is it down there? Oh, yeah, but now you're talking about creature comforts. Yeah. You actually <laughs> want to be comfortable when you go down to the bottom of the ocean? <laughs> um, yes, uh, certainly if you're going to spend any time at the bottom. Uh, the depths actually are quite cold, and, and so what's interesting is that when you start out a dive. Um, it's kind of hot inside and you're bouncing around, but then when you're released uh, and go down to the bottom, the ocean water at the, at the deepest depths is in the range of about zero to four degrees uh, centigrade, and, and uh, the, the submersible gets quite cold once you're down there, and so you actually get condensation on the interior of the, of the craft. And so that's in part why you'll see uh, James Cameron wearing a, a, a cap as he comes out of the submersible, because it's cold after a while. Oh, it's not uh, just because it... Yeah, I mean, it, it has a very kind of uh, explorer look to it. Jacques Cousteau. Yeah. Right, right, indeed. Well, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's perhaps uh, multi-purpose. Of course, the first priority um, is uh, Mr. Cameron's safety. Is there, is there like a sort of an escape pod mode where it can jettison all the arms and cameras and everything and just get him back up there if, there, if something had gone wrong? Uh, there is a, a ballast uh, release um, mode and, a, a, and sort of an additional timer that releases that ballast. So if, if, if uh, Jim were to pass out or something like that, I believe after... Uh, um, I forget what the total time is, but it's a day or something like that. This piece of metal corrodes and 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 releases that additional ballast, uh, making the submersible buoyant and and bringing the craft back up to the surface. I mean, you're the expert here, but a day seems like a really long time. <laughs> I believe uh, he's he's got enough backup to stay alive at the bottom for up to 72 hours or something like that. So there is quite a bit of redundancy to to make sure that. Uh, if plan A doesn't work, there, there's, uh, there's a plan B, C, D, E, F, all the way on through. So, Kevin, thanks so much. And can I just say, I hope you guys find some really freaky stuff down there. <laughs> well, 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 we'll keep on searching for all that freaky stuff, and, and hopefully uh, uh, Jim will catch it on uh, uh, with the 3D cameras. On the line now is Amir. Now, Amir is a Boy Scout, and uh, he wants some advice on how to cook really good food for his troop. He wants to impress the other scouts. So, Amir, is it really that competitive? Uh, it's not mostly competitive, but normally it's whenever you cook. 
if you cook badly, you get shunned and yelled at by most of the other kids <laughs> if you cook badly. But if you do good, then everyone's like, man, this kid, he did he cooked very awesome. They go around with their food and they share it to the other kids. Well, so what 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 do you win? Like what what are you looking for at the it's end? It's just you get you get recognition. You get like yeah. everyone says, yes, he cooked good. He gets to cook next time. And if you cook next time, you're guaranteed to at least eat edible food. So really, you're just looking out so that you have good food to eat. You only trust yourself. Yeah, mostly. Okay. A few other people are good, but yeah. So, what's an example of something like if you cooked bad, if you cooked a really bad meal, what the other Boy Scouts would say to you? Uh, they would, they would, they would say that they're not going to eat the food and complain and complain and complain. This is very different from what I was never a Boy Scout. This is very <laughs> different from what I imagined the the a camp out to be. Uh, it varies, you know. If someone, if you have those kids who, com- who just want to complain, they expect it to be like home cooking. Yeah, yeah. But that's not why you're in the Boy Scouts. You don't, you're not out in the woods looking for home cooking. You're out in the woods no. looking to live rough. Yeah. Think on your wits and stuff like survive. that. Survive. Yeah. We, but, you know, I, I think we can still help you come up with some good, good food out there. So we're, we're going to go try and track somebody down and, and see if we can do that. Okay, thanks. Joining us now are Emily, Amy, and Catherine. They run DirtyGourmet.com. First of all, does it surprise you guys that Boy Scouts operate like this? Not at all. They spend a lot of time outdoors, so they should be properly nourished while they're out there. Well, yeah, but don't don't you think, I always think of Boy Scouts as like a particularly wholesome, loving, you know, they're... Very collegial, oh. like a team. Yeah. <laughs> but they're boys. But they're boys, yeah. <laughs> all right, fair I'm enough. A, I'm a little surprised by that. Okay. I didn't think they would care that much about the food, but now it sounds like they might lose a patch. So uh, Amir wants to be sort of the iron chef of the Boy Scout camping trips. So can we just start off with um, some tips for, for Amir? Sure. Well, generally, you need to think about what you would make at home instead of just what's camping food, um, like your favorite meal at home, and try to figure out some ways to update that to make it camping friendly. Okay. So. You don't necessarily want to deal with all dried food. Some fresh ingredients can come into the backcountry with you. Mm-hmm. Um, also, don't forget spices. Spices can definitely come with you, and it takes a little bit of prep to remember them. But when you add that, that makes a camping meal totally different. So, like, if you had to pick, because I imagine for Amir, he's going to have limited space. So what, like, three spices would you bring? First of all, you need salt. Salt is your best friend. Okay. Pepper is another good one. And then I would say one more that is your favorite that you could kind of put in a lot of different things. I think part of making a good meal is to really customize it. Mm -hmm. And so if you're crazy about Italian herb mix, then go ahead and bring that and you'll love your meal that much more. So not just don't bring just basil or oregano, but bring them together. Exactly. Spice mixes are great. Mm -hmm. Create your own favorite spice blend. All right. And is there, when uh, he's packing this up, is there a special way you recommend he he bring these spices? We went on a four-month bicycle tour across Canada, and I dragged along a little kit of tiny Ziploc bags full of spices. And everybody thought I was crazy, but it really made for some good meals. So I I think little Ziplocs are a great way to go. Okay, so spices, that makes sense, because that's, mm-hmm. that's like an unexpected thing, that when you're out in the woods, 
you pull out some spices, that's going to impress everybody. It's going to make a difference. What else can we tell Amir? Fresh ingredients. Um, people just tend to bring dehydrated food or canned food camping. But if you bring fresh ingredients, like just a, a couple pieces of fruit or some fresh vegetables, it just makes all the difference in the world. So what's uh, if, you know, if Amir has a couple things he can bring along, fresh foods, what, what would you recommend? Sturdier vegetables like carrots, onions, garlic, that kind of thing. Did you say dirty? Sturdy. Oh, sturdy. Tough. (laughs) Something you can throw in your backpack and it's not going to get ruined. And having, you know, some aromatics in there, having garlic in your backpack, it's going to, your uniform, your Boy Scout uniform is going to have a distinct smell as well. Yeah, so those ones you need to package a little better than in a Ziploc baggie. Okay. I think you're going to be stinky anyway, so it'll just blend. Is there a meal you guys would recommend to other people camping that's very simple but that's going to really impress people? I think one good meal that we've made that people really like are camping nachos. You just get tortillas, uh, tortilla chips, which you might have anyways, and you can get a can of beans. You heat that up. You have some shredded cheese and any other toppings you might like, like jalapenos or corn. And all the, the key to it is you heat up the beans. So first, put the chips down, put the shredded cheese on top of it, and then in a pot or a big plate, and then put the hot beans over it. That's going to melt the cheese, and then put all the other toppings, and then you get a feeding frenzy. That is, I would never think to make nachos. That seems like a, like a, fan, like a, it doesn't feel like camping food. Right. That's the point. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is great. I think, hopefully, I think Amir will take this and, uh, rise to the top ranks of the Boy Scout troop he's in. (laughs) We hope so. Good luck, Amir. Father Nicholas Becker is calling from Rome. So, Father, you have a question for us about the Coptic Church? I do, I do. Uh, I was sad to hear, oh, I think it's been a couple weeks now, that uh, Pope Shenouda III of Alexandria died. Uh, And I know he was a great figure, a great man uh, in his own church, and a great ecumenical leader. And I was just wondering, I know a little bit about how when the Pope of Rome dies, how a new one was elected. I was wondering how they elect the new Coptic Pope. I have no idea. It's not our typical kind of question, but I think we can can find you an answer. Well, that's good. Um, And uh, Father Becker, if you can just hold the line, we're going to call up an expert. You can listen in. This is uh, Stephen Davis. He's a religion professor at Yale University. So, Stephen, tell us how the the Coptic Church chooses their pope. There are sort of staged nominations. Um, These nominations become public. Mm -hmm. But what happens is these names are collected together, and then there's a a sort of a a ceremony, a prayer service. And the last two times what has happened, at the end of that prayer service, a child is asked to go to the hat, if you will, and reach in and select out a name. And that person is the person who's been uh, identified as the, the next pope. Wait, they they just have a child pick a name out of a hat? That's right. And the, the rationale for this is that um, this is a way to ensure that sort of the hand of God uh, uh, is the one who ultimately does the selection. They don't want, they want to, they want it to be very apparent that human agency ultimately is not the not the deciding factor, so that the process cannot be um, rigged in any way. Uh, and I know, I know, in the most recent uh, example, in 1971, they blindfolded the child. So um, 
Now, I know, I know that there's been discussions this time around as to whether that's what the Church wants to do. So where do they get this kid? From the community, yeah. Are, so are there parents out there who are kind of grooming kids in a kind of like toddlers and tiaras <laughs> type of situation where they're trying to, you know, let's let my kid be the Pope chooser? There's a whole special school for them. Well, you no, would I'm think. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal, you know. They can't slip up. Well, Stephen, uh, thank you so much for, for talking us through this. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks. We have a similar process to choosing our experts here, and I'm so glad that the child pulled your name out of the hat. <laughs> God bless that child. Quick update here on uh, the How to Do Everything March Madness bracket pool. Sam is in last place. He picked Harvard to go all the way. It's a bad case of linsanity. It is. Anton is currently at the top of the pool, but he has really no chance of winning. And I was going to, I was when I saw this, I was thinking the picks he's made from here on in, uh, it's a mathematical impossibility for Anton to win. It seems like it is to me, too. And it reminded me, uh, a couple years ago I did this piece about how often people misuse the phrase mathematical impossibility. Here's uh, Ken Bube. He's a mathematician at the University of Washington. When you talk about mathematical impossibility, you actually mean that it cannot happen, as opposed to the way we generally use this in, in our culture to mean something is so unlikely that we can't believe it's going to happen. So mostly people misuse it. Like People now say, Rick Santorum, it's a mathematical impossibility that he's going to win the GOP nomination. Right. It's not. It's just highly improbable. It's a long shot. Right. Um, So I had looked around for something that is actually a mathematical impossibility. Free tacos. And it turns out vampires. Vampires are a mathematical impossibility. Okay. There's this physicist, Cosmos Ephthemiu, who figured out, uh, you know, how vampires work. If there's a vampire and a human being, the vampire bites the human, then they're both vampires. vampires. Right. So he did this model calculating how vampirism would spread. Mm-hmm. So if you had one vampire, 500 million humans, Mm -hmm. if vampires eat one meal a month... One person. Yeah. Then Cosmos says... In two and a half years, all the population on Earth has become vampires. So given the math, either there are no vampires anywhere or we would all be vampires. Thanks, math, for telling us there's no such thing as vampires. (laughs) How do you rid the sweat? You know what that sound means? I'm throwing away my Jan Arden CD. It's time to announce the winner of the world's best worst song contest. Now, for an almost interminable amount of time, you have been sending us songs that you love and you recognize the rest of the world hates. People have voted and your votes have determined the final four. Here to help us pick the winner is, uh, well, do I call you Al or Weird Al? Whatever you like, but I usually go by Al. Okay. Al, we'll do that then. Yeah, it's going to be weird. I want to call you Weird Al. Call me whatever you like. All right, so uh, are you ready to be our official judge in the world's best worst song contest? I'm not sure, but let's do it anyway. Okay. We are down to four of those best worst songs. Okay. And we would like you to pick what should, should reign as champion. All right, I'm ready. All right, so here we go. We will list them off for you. The first one is Friday by Rebecca Black. Uh-huh. That was nominated by Eric. Mm-hmm. Next we have Chad's pick, Cisco's The Thong Song. 
Uh-huh. And then we have the Backstreet Boys, I Want It That Way, submitted by Cheryl. Okay. And uh, the final finalist, uh, picked by Steven, is Meatloaf's I Would Do Anything for Love, but I okay. won't do that. Uh, are you ready? Well, should I say kind of go through this then? Sure, Please, yeah, yeah. Break it down. Uh, okay, well, you know, uh, the Backstreet Boys, uh, I, I Want It That Way, there's nothing wrong with that song. It's a solid, well-constructed pop song. It's like boilerplate pop, so it depends how much you like that genre, but you can't fault it for really being a bad song. It's it's basically radio-friendly pop, and I think the reason it got a... Uh, you know, a bad rap is because it came out in the in the in the epicenter of the whole boy band backlash. So I'm I'm going to discount that one. Uh, uh, Meatloaf, um, you know, it's a bloated, overproduced Jim Steinman epic, but I happen to love that kind of thing. It's you know, it's a little anachronistic and it's a little goofy and it's got this odd esoteric double entendre thing going on, but. Not a bad song, you know. Uh, Cisco, again, you know, it's a song about a song, which is sort of ridiculous, and it kind of flirts with being novelty, but it's really not better or worse than anything that you typically hear in a club. However, Rebecca Black Friday, this is an unabashedly horrible song. And I, let me say right now, this is, you know, no offense, nothing against Ms. Black. I mean, I'm sure she's very nice. I'm sure she's a very sweet girl. It's about the song, the song itself. The song really made a lot of people mad for some reason. It got like, uh, I think it broke the YouTube record. It got like an 87% dislike rating. But uh, it's actually a very enjoyable song, but only uh, <laughs> ironically. For most sentient beings, it can only be enjoyed ironically. Uh, and the thing that makes it that fun to listen to is because she's completely uh, unaware. I mean, she, she's got this level of commitment. She's got like a Tommy Wiseau, the room level of commitment to like this horrible thing. Uh, which makes it compelling to watch. You can't believe that she's <laughs> doing this with a completely straight face without a wink. She's, you know, she's going for it. All right. So I guess, uh, Eric, congratulations. You uh, have the worst taste in the world. <laughs> Yay, Eric. It's only fitting, really, that we not play Friday right now. No one wants to hear that song, Eric. That does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? I learned that one of the world's great and ancient religions picks its leader by pulling names out of a hat. Yeah, but not only that, they have little kids choosing. Yeah. Like, I have a hard enough time letting my kids choose, like, where we go out to eat. Yeah, no, it seems like if you let your kids choose, you would end up with Pope Applebee's. I wonder if James Cameron left anything down there, if he wrote his name or anything, because they have an extendable arm on that submersible, so you think he could have, you know, written his name. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I guess if you want to write the ex-girlfriend's phone number on the wall the bottom of one of the most unreachable places in the world is the most polite place to do it yeah unless of course like some merman calls her up yeah hello jetted yeah you sound god you sound like you're calling from the bottom of the ocean that's because i am oh i'm on my shell phone How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Haga with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Kate Casey. She also wins the contest for our world's best worst intern. Congratulations, yeah. Kate. Good job. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. Or check out our website at howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>